Hey y'all, you're listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. Matt Hamilton is an audio engineer who's worked on many films in and around the American South. And so, while joining us back by the woodpile today, Hamilton explains to us not only the nuances of his trade, but comments on the science of sound in general, the adventures his work has taken him on, his experimental guitar work, the philosophy of Viktor Frankl, and the day we both spent with King Crimson's Robert Fripp. You make a living out of sound. Yeah, yeah, I record dialogue, which, living in Nashville, the problem is, when you say you record sound, everyone's first assumption is, oh, what bands have you worked with? And so I always had to clarify that, no, it's actually this very specific niche of, like, only recording dialogue. And then people say, oh, so do you do voiceovers? And I'm like, no, I don't do them. I run the recorder. It's something people don't, I guess just don't think about, but I literally just aim a mic at people talking and make sure we can hear the actors. You know, for the uninitiated, you know, when people watch a movie, I don't think I would know it unless I knew you and knew other things. That that if you were just to point a camera at somebody and record it, like the voice would come out pretty badly. You would wouldn't be able to hear it. Yeah, I mean, in the past you couldn't do that because film does not have an audio track; it's purely visual. I mean. Even though you go to the theater and it's, it used to be on film, that's not what's in the camera. Like, they've done some stuff, and that's a different type of film mm-hmm. that has an audio track on it. So, you know, videotape changed that because it automatically, you know, it usually had a way to record audio simultaneously. But even then, it wouldn't sound that great. No, and that has to do more with mic placement. Right. You know, because you got... The problem is sound is really strange, first of all. I mean, the more it's an interesting topic to me just conceptually because... There's a whole area of research called psychoacoustics, and that gets into the fact that you're not hearing what you think you're hearing. Like your eardrum is picking up sound waves, but your brain does a monstrous amount of processing on it that affects things from just what frequencies you're focused on to what background noise you don't hear. Like right now the microphone on your recorder is probably picking the bird up outside the window, but if you were sitting here talking to me, you wouldn't even notice it because your brain automatically focuses and filters that out. Right. And the problem, of course, a microphone doesn't have the brain part, so it's that's why, you know, any microphone just turned on in a room hears all kinds of stuff you don't normally hear because it's almost like a decoupling of your processing from the actual picking up of the sound waves. Now, I remember our early days of meeting each other. Uh, you had said you went to school, university, for mm-hmm. sound. And you showed me a clip of Jurassic Park. Yeah. And the project was they took the sound off completely, everything. Mm-hmm. Like there's nothing. It's just it's just film. And you guys had to, I guess, you, with via Foley. Is that right? Yeah. In okay. that case, yeah, it was Foley. Yeah. Now, and you can explain what Foley means in a second. But you had to put the sounds in of everything from not only like the pots and pans like hitting the ground or the dinosaur growling or you know, his feet you know going on the against the ground, but also, just the, the sound that a room would make in total silence. Yeah, I mean, that's really an interesting point. Um, 
most people don't think about the fact that there's no such thing as silence. Right. I mean, really, unless you're in outer space. But then what happens is you hear your own heartbeat and the blood in your ears, like that, that kind of sound of blood in your ears. So you really, honestly, no human being can ever perceive silence unless they're just deaf and don't have the ability to pick it up at all. So in any movie situation, if it was, you think, well, when no one's talking, it's silent. But then if you really pay attention in any conversation, when people pause... Exhibit A. Yeah, I mean, there's always <laughs> something going And now, obviously, a bird is a really obvious thing. But even in a room where it's just like low air conditioning, mm-hmm. and if there's a change in that, your brain is so keyed into it that in movies, a lot of times, they'll record just a track or they recreate like a bed, if you will, like a foundation of ambient sound that everything else sits on top of. Because if you didn't have that, you just have all these disconnected sounds with no kind of... It, it would be an obvious change if suddenly it was silent. Right. So, did you ever want to do Foley for a living? Or how, and how did you land into dialogue? Well, I really liked music growing up, and so after a long time in school, kind of not knowing what I wanted to do with my career or education, I got a degree in recording, uh, studio recording for music, and a minor in music, and when I got out of school, I just realized, you know, I'm not musically, I'm not the kind of person that's going to sit down and write your standard verse, chorus, verse kind of song. I just was not good with lyrics, and just kind of realized, like, I really need to emphasize more of the technical recording part than trying to do a musical thing. That's nice that you recognized your weaknesses because that doesn't stop a lot of people from trying to write a song. Oh yeah, no, it wasn't. It's just frustrating. You know, I mean, you keep banging your head against the wall like, I mean, I write poetry and I like to think I do a pretty good job with that and I play instrumental music for fun but trying to marry the two things just never worked. It was like, you know, yeah, you just have to kind of recognize when something is not for you and luckily learning the recording stuff meant I could still get a job. I didn't have to be a musician or have to just make it work, you know, which was my goal in getting the degree was to get a technical knowledge that could work even on the days when I wasn't feeling inspired. Now, I actually fell into doing this because I didn't know this was a career path. Typically, my position is called a production sound mixer, which also is called the location sound mixer, which the location part of that really kind of keys you in on what it is I'm doing I'm the guy that goes to the place where they're shooting Mm -hmm. so the location of the shoot or the set for the film and that's all I do is go to the locations and record the audio on location because you can do a lot of stuff with sound nowadays like after the fact like Foley that we're talking about earlier is just adding in sound effects right because again if you even with a modern technology, if you just film something, like someone walking, you may not hear the footsteps, and this, something seems to be lost. And, yeah, of course, anybody can go on YouTube and look at videos of people doing Foley work. It's pretty interesting. Uh, some yeah, of the, it's fascinating. Well, and the other thing you don't realize is, like, when you have a rain scene, let's say, well, they have to use a machine to generate the rain, which is noisy. Mm-hmm. So none of that dialogue at the moment is usable, and so, but they know they can replace it. Now, that being said, some people say, oh, well, 
do they really even use any of the location sound because they can just fix it later? And the truth of the matter is that it's much quicker, more cost-effective, and just better as far as the performance quality if you can get it all when it happens. Right. I mean, that's kind of not a that's kind of a no-brainer, but the performance part I think throws people because you don't think about the fact that, like, yeah, when an actor's in the middle of it it's going to feel more real, right. you know, and you can detect, even if you don't know it, you kind of, I think, psychologically, some part of you can figure out something doesn't match. Here's a, a nerdy thing to know that, of course, having a video store, a lot of film people came in, film students, and we had a, an enormous Asian movie section, and particularly from Hong Kong. I remember. One fact about them, I don't think it was... I can't remember when they actually started recording sound, why they, why they actually filmed. But it wasn't until either the 90s or maybe even into the aughts where... Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's actually a good point. Yeah, they yeah. they dubbed everything in later. That's why everything seems so odd. If you watch a Hong Kong film during that it's time like that period... like in Europe, like in certain... Yeah. Like Spain and it, like That's why if you watch like uh, Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, which was shot, you know, famously the Italian westerns... Mm-hmm. None of that sound was from location. So it's not, it's, it's a strange thing. It's like kind of an oddly American thing where you try to capture it as it's happening. And so it's not like a hard and fast thing. But yeah, like the Italian Westerns, everything, all the sounds, nothing was part of it originally. Right. It sounds very unnatural, but, but it gives it's got it a, a weird, yeah, it's almost like surreal, but yes. in like a hyper realistic way, <laughs> right. you know? Right. But you can understand from their point of view that it's a whole lot easier. Just yeah, the to, languages is the issue. There, yeah, right? that too. And just easier to record in a studio where everything is, you can go back and keep doing it until it's right or, you know, whatever. But sometimes the, the lip, on occasion you'll see the lips don't quite match. Just a slight, you know, here and there. Well, and it's a hard thing. I mean, you think, like, they call that ADR, which stands for Automated Dialogue Replacement, which is kind of an antiquated term because now it's all computer-based. But basically what you're doing in, that, in an ADR session is the actor's standing there. They're watching the image and in their ear they're hearing it and what happens is right before the line they're supposed to replace it does like three beeps and then on the fourth is when you start talking but they're having to do that and be in the flow and visually synced with what so i mean thinking about how many different things you're trying to do i mean it's not it's not a great environment for acting so it's tough for actors but better for filmmakers that want that perfect sound or right and, and you know it's a skill like anything like some actors can nail it mm-hmm. but other like marlon brando famously would mumble his lines on set intentionally because he wanted to come up with a better performance in the adr stage which is completely upside down from what most people do so some people, you know, it's, it's, it, it gives you flexibility, but it can also hamstring you because if you have an actor that is not good at that, then, you know, it, it, it ends up being a lot like, you know, like the Die Hard, the movie where they like released it with like cleaned up language. And it's like, hey, you mother scratcher. <laughs> and you see his mouth obviously is not, right. you know, and also ADR, like if it's like a Gettysburg address, you can't do that. Right. Like it's, it works way better for like someone going, hey, come here. Right. Where it's like a quick, you know, pretty precise thing. Or right. if their heads turn and you don't see them, then, you know, that's super. That's not even really ADR. That's just putting a line in.
Okay, so now that we've established all the nerd talk and yeah. the, the technicality, oh, I got a lot the, more. Uh, oh, great! I want to talk about how the fact that because of this job, it's definitely took you around the world. You've uh, had yeah. some adventures. You probably have been on some wonderful films and some terrible ones at the same time. <laughs> but what was the first film that you remember recording the dialogue for? Well, you know, the first film I remember working on, like, I did a lot of student films. Right. So, and I kind of, you know, I, I kind of don't count those because that was honestly me in the learning stage, you know, mm-hmm. because it was kind of a situation where a local university didn't really have a sound uh, subsection of their film program. And so a lot of the students were kind of like, well, you know, we know how to visually shoot it, but it sounds awful. And I kind of wanted to get into it and befriended some of those people and would start just basically volunteering on the weekends mm. with the with the thought basically like I can't do any worse because I at least have it I mean it sounds awful but you know they would still get better audio than they would have gotten with no knowledge of audio and I was still learning and brushing up on it but it would be better by virtue of the fact that I just knew something about right. audio and I could hear and figure out tricks and I mean the, a lot of those people were going to go on to make better films or be involved oh yeah in some stuff. of them have since I mean they didn't necessarily make films but like they've worked on you know like Scrubs and like oh, people yeah. I knew from school like have done actual you know major shows wow cool so but the first movie I did was called Blood Oath and it was a basic take kids out in the woods and they meet a killer and he murders them and it's, you know, special effects. And based stuff. on a true story. Based on a true story. <laughs> but my friend David Bukert um, had wanted, he was he's a big horror fan, especially B-grade movies, and he had met me. I was working at a store at the time that rented out audio equipment for this profession, which is really kind of how I learned more about it is I was able to be around the equipment at basically a desk job in a rental department. So whenever I got out, I kind of had had a chance to play with it and kind of knew how it worked and talked to some people as they would come through the store and get advice. Because it wasn't, this was before the internet really had taken off with discussion groups. And it was, it's kind of like if you start asking people too much, you feel like you're kind of being invasive and like they're going to be like, hey, you're trying to compete with me. I'm right. not going to tell you my secrets. Sure. But at the same time, you know, there's no way to learn otherwise, mm-hmm. you know. And once the discussion groups started taking off, that was amazing. It opened up the world because you could get on there and find out all kinds of things. But yeah, Bucher, he liked uh, horror movies and the, the schlockier the better. Like the trauma stuff? Yeah. Did they get one of their films picked up by trauma? Yeah. I think Blood Oath did get picked up. But it, it took forever to get finished mm-hmm. because it was, in, you know, he was just using his own money. And movies, that's what people don't realize. Like, even a cheap movie that's done really low budget is really expensive. Well, explain why. Well, I mean, you got to figure, like, a decent movie is going to have at least 50 people on it. I mean, just to get everything to work. Because it's twofold. Like, it's a speed thing because if you have one guy dealing with lights and you have to set up five lights, well, that's going to take a lot longer than if you have five guys you're doing like a scene where you need daylight through the windows let's say and you're seeing four or five windows well you can't rely on the clouds and like the day you know you might shoot for 12 hours to get that scene and you need the light to be consistent Mm -hmm. so it's a it's a lot of stuff i mean even like a small crew i mean with with dave when we shot that it was me doing the sound and i was wearing everything which you know it's all portable and and typically on a movie it would be me recording and then a separate guy doing mic placements and helping out but we, you know there just was no budget and one camera guy and he was also lighting and kind of eyeballing it you know <laughs> and i mean in that case obviously we aren't going to have like super high like eight 
lights and you know you, you can't do like fake moonlight and stuff you know you just kind of have to live with what you get which is why cheaper movies look like they do mm-hmm. none of the technology is it's just starting to barely get to a point where it matches what you see and hear accurately like, or at least hearing not so much but seeing like keeping the color scheme correct uh, making sure the light doesn't shift when you change camera angles because every time a camera changes angles you have to imagine they've cut the camera reposition stuff and then start again and keeping that consistent is way harder than sound mm-hmm. in, in my opinion for what I've seen so but also it's just like I don't work every day you know being a I'm, I'm freelance which means people will contact me and say okay we need a sound guy for these days what's your rate so you know my daily rate is a lot of money compared to what most people make in one day but when you average it out over the year, I make probably less than most people, you know, at a nine to five job because they might work 40 hours a week. I might work like 24 hours a week and I have to be able to live on it. Mm-hmm. And so it kind of has been compensated that way. Plus, I'm paying money insurance, a lot of other stuff that comes into play as a self-employed person. But mm-hmm. so everybody else is living in that same financial world as you. Yeah. And it's and it's completely unstable. I mean, I don't. You know, I always joke with people. They're like, hey, when are you working? I'm like, well, I'm unemployed the rest of my life as far as I know. I mean, (laughs) because until someone calls you, I mean, I've literally gotten calls the day before they're going to bring me in. Now, if it's a bigger project, obviously they'll plan, but Mm. it's freaked me out at first. And like 15 years later, I'm like, well, I guess it worked. You know, so far so good, as they say. You don't look too hungry. about some of the highlights your career has uh thrown you into i guess you could say i've done some documentaries like i think probably the two biggest moments for me were going to morocco and going to the sudan explain what that documentary was about well the first documentary was right after 9-11 and it was like basically you know there's a big christian music industry in nashville and so there's christian musicians and islamic musicians doing a concert together with the idea of like kind of, you know, uniting and peaceful whatever. And so I was just basically hired to go cover that as part of the documentary crew because they made a DVD to mm-hmm. kind of talk about it. What artists were involved in that? Phil Kagi was one of them. There was a girl who later went on to do stuff with, a, I think, uh, in the Civil Wars, I think was the band. Mm-hmm. But she was really great. They were all, you know, fine. Um, and then the Islamic musicians, I mean, they were actually local Morocco musicians, so I, I don't remember any of their names because none of them really even had crossed the water as right. far as, like, being well-known here. But, but it was it was interesting. It was a little more of a touristy experience, though, because it was in Marrakesh, which is kind of where a lot of French people uh, and other people from Europe come to vacation. So it was kind of like world travel light whereas uh, when i went to sudan that was uh there's a guy here in nashville there was a band you know big and rich sure did a bunch of songs that they got popular for but the guy you know big who is his first name's kenny so you know kenny was he was supporting a local girls school in sudan and wanted um to do a documentary about it to just raise awareness that like here's where this money's going i'm not just funneling it into my bank account 
And so, yeah, I happened to know the camera guy who actually knew Kenny from back before he had hit it big with Big and Rich. So it just was a series of lucky accidents, really, that, you know, we flew over there. And, I mean, it was it was tremendous because, I mean, we had to charter a plane to land in Sudan because basically there was no airport where we were going and we landed on what effectively was a dried stretch of ground. I mean, it was like landing in a field. It wasn't like a riverbed, but it was kind of like, you know, just a kind of would have been mud if it had been too wet. So we had to gauge the right time. Cause you know, I mean, kind of being raised in Tennessee, I kind of naively had always thought, oh, Africa is like what, you know, that kind of stereotypical image of like a bunch of grassy stuff with like lions and <laughs> but, but when I got there, I realized like, oh no, Sudan is actually marshy which is kind of a weird thing to me. I'd never thought of that. Flying over it, it just looks like a huge swamp. So it's really hard for them to have infrastructure and all that. But, yeah, we landed, and when they opened the door, I mean, a wave of heat hits you because it's not a pressurized plane. You're flying too low. So when you're up in the air, it's actually just the air around the plane, and so that's what temperature is. So it's fairly cool and comfortable. And then as you come down, you start getting hotter and hotter. And then you open the door, and, I mean, it's like a wall of heat. And we had to wear long pants because culturally, if you're wearing shorts, they think of you as immature because only kids wear shorts. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're in like crazy heat and we're a bunch of like lazy Americans, like, you know, having to walk around drinking water. It really is like being on an alien yeah. planet just because, I mean, you, you start to realize how much you take for granted. Well, I'll tell you. The thing that got me was the day we landed, we were walking from the, where the plane landed to where we were going to be staying and in the village there. And I looked up, and there were bats in the trees in the middle of the day. And I'm like, holy crap. <laughs> this is, I mean, so, and that seems like such a small thing, but it was like that weird detail of like, like, oh, that dog has three eyes. You yeah. know? It's like it's like that kind of thing where if you didn't really think about it, you might kind of look past it. But uh-huh. I was like, whoa, this is kind of weird. But what was interesting about the trip was the people there were all happy. Like, they're all really upbeat. And I guess I'd also kind of had this misunderstanding that, you know, you think people in the Sudan are waking up like, oh, this sucks. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't have a TV or a hamburger yeah. today. I can't play Nintendo. Right. You know, and then you get over there and you realize, like, no, people wake up in the Sudan and are like, it's a pretty good day. Yeah. I'm going to hang out, you yeah. know. There are miserable areas, I can tell you, but, yeah. but Yes, but and, I mean, don't get me wrong. Yeah. yeah. There's definitely, like, medical stuff, you know, that people struggle with right. uh, that we saw some of that. But there's a different standard of misery uh, or yeah. acceptance of what's, what's a bad life, you know, I would say. Well, and also I think it's like, it occurred to me like we're actually at a disadvantage in America and by that I mean like you know where we stayed they build their houses out of mud and grass if I had to build a shelter for myself I'd be lucky if it didn't blow over <laughs> in the night you know yeah. they, they can take dirt and grass and make a home you know that they can live in for years you know right. so it's just like that skill set you know if anything ever happened where the American you know, economy somehow broke down in such a way or some chain of food or what. Like, I have to go to a store, which means I have to depend on not only the store employees, I have to depend on the electrical system, I have to depend on the interstate 
you know, trade system of truckers and God knows what else, which means I have to depend on the petroleum industry. I mean, there's so many levels, right? As opposed to like, oh, I put this thing in the ground yeah. and it rained, which I didn't even do, and right. it grew food, and now I can stay alive. For the economic nerds out there, it would be what Adam Smith called the invisible hand. Mm. It somehow all works together, even though one part doesn't know what the other part is doing, or doesn't even know how they do it, you know. But. Yeah. So you worked on uh, Steve Taylor musician he's been a subject of other podcasts for his music but you, he also is a filmmaker and he teaches film at yeah he's i think he's head of the department belmont right now yeah so he did the films second chance and uh, blue light jazz is that yeah the- i worked on second chance uh, and blue light jazz i did not work on okay but on second chance i was actually not the main sound mixer i was the boom op so and the boom op just for those of you following along in your notes is <laughs> the guy that you know you see the news and there's a guy waving the pole with the furry mic on the end of it and trying to get that's that's he's doing boom operating but on a film set it's much more controlled than that and the fur is really just keeping the wind off the mic but usually you have the mixer which would be like let's say me sitting at a cart with a bunch of equipment on it recording and listening to the quality and then the boom up is actually at the end of this long cable or he's on a wireless setup where he's on set and actually figuring out where the mic goes and communicating back to the mixer mm-hmm. on a headset. So it's kind of division of labor because it, it gets a little bit stressful. Right. Now. His arms are strong because you have to hold it up all that time, right? Yeah, no kidding. I was, I was on this like other horror movie where it was a wide shot and I had to have the pole. I had like a 16-foot-long pole extended. With all the wind stuff you had to put, it was outside and the wind protection was fairly heavy. I mean, once you add it, you don't think it's that bad, but even if it adds, like, a half a pound, like, at the end of a 16-foot pole, that fulcrum is really messed up. And so, I mean, my arm started shaking, and it's like this weird moment of, like, every bit of me is trying not to shake, and you just can't control it after a while. So, used to, with film, you could only run a a canister of film for, I think, like, eight minutes Mm -hmm. at the most. And I mean, it's still a long, long time to be holding a pole, but like now you can put a videotape in or a card and go for like two hours and never cut. Mm-hmm. So it's really changed, you know, that's not physically right. possible. So wireless mics have made that a lot more easy to deal with in some respects, you know. Were any particular memories about Second Chance? It's going to seem weird, but the thing that comes to mind for some reason is this one shot we did where it was a steady cam move. We started at the door of this church, like it's outside the church, and this woman's yelling at this girl who's walking away from her. And then the camera moves with the girl as she's walking away while the first lady is chasing her. So it's like kind of like the camera's in motion, kind of moving along with them as they're having this argument. And they're crossing the street and walking. And I was booming it with a wireless setup. And for some reason, that was just a lot of fun, you know? Like, we got a few passes, but you still don't totally know because when people start moving, mm-hmm. you know things get things get weird, and you just don't, and then you're having to avoid the camera, so you're watching the camera guy moving, but you're also having to watch the end of your microphone and make sure it's aimed at the person talking, which is changing because one person says something, you aim at them, but then you got to move it pretty fast to get to the other person, and you're listening, so. And you're walking and stepping up and down. I mean, there's all this stuff going so on. So it was an attempt to do like a continuous shot? Yeah. Yeah, okay. it was like it started at a door and then went to like a street corner. Okay, and that's hard to do because usually the cameras sit there 
they have it one position, they film and they do it to another position, but it may only be for a couple seconds or 30 seconds. Whereas a continuous shot is like everything is moving, everything, oh, yeah. everything has to be perfect. I think historically, Alfred Hitchcock's rope, that was one where yeah. he shot as long as the film canisters would go and then that would be the cut. Yeah. And that was incredible. Was it eight minutes or 16 minutes at a time? I, I, yeah, I'm not sure. Right. We are like children of uh, men. I haven't seen that one. I think that's it, right? The one where it's like set in the future and everyone can't have kids. There's an incredible shot two times in the mm-hmm. movie where they start and they just go. I mean, it feels like forever. I mean, mm-hmm. it's like it feels like you're like 10 minutes long yeah. and they don't cut the camera. Well, probably the, the, uh, the king of all those type of things would be Russian Ark. Have you seen that one? No, I think I've heard of it. Yeah, when it goes straight for like an hour and a half, there's no cuts whatsoever. Mm. I mean, they're going through this Russian museum, there's this dialogue, and each room something different happens. And as they're coming around, like when they leave a room, they're tearing down really quickly because they're, they're going to end up in that room again because it's a circular thing. And it's, they say when they finished that film and they said cut, and the cameraman like laid the camera down and just started weeping. Because he, for an hour and a half he'd been holding this camera and everything did go perfect miraculously. But It is something. It's like no other form of creativity because it's a group of people creating. Whereas, you know, a lot of art, I mean, even in bands to a way, you're playing your instrument and you're kind of listening to what the other person's doing. But with film, I mean, it's all got to come together. And if it doesn't, it's pretty obvious. <laughs> A few years ago, I was watching a pretty good documentary called Muscle Shoals about the legendary Alabama studio that recorded Aretha Franklin, the Staple Singers, Bob Dylan, Leonard Skinner, among others. And there was Matt Hamilton's name in the credits. I asked him about that experience. Yeah, it was really cool because, you know, since I like sound anyway, I mean, it's kind of like a, the best of both worlds because I'm getting paid to do a documentary on yeah. music. Um, and honestly, you know, I never knew that much about the Muscle Shoals thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I kind of knew of it, mm-hmm. but one of the kind of cool things about working on documentaries is it's kind of like you're learning about the topic as it happens, and usually you're getting more than what ends up in the final movie. Like, like I really wish that in the final documentary they had included some of the performances or had done some... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for, like a bonus features, because, you know, we recorded some kind of cool things where, like, there's one scene where there's a guy, one of the Muscle Shoals studio session guys with another one. The Swampers. The Swampers, yeah. one of the, Two of the Swampers, we went to one guy's house, and another one of them showed up, and they just did a little duo thing out on the deck over the river, and, I mean, it was awesome, you know, but it just didn't fit in the flow of it. Sure. So... And, you know, working on it, I never had any idea that it would necessarily do as well as it has. I mean, not that I thought it was going to be bad, but just you just really don't know how things are going to go. I've worked on stuff that I thought, this is going to be awesome, and then it comes out and no one watches it. You know, Rick Hall was an interesting character. Rick Hall was like kind of the guy that then the Swampers worked for. Mm-hmm. It was just a cool thing to be able to, like, follow Rick Hall to his old house and be like, and like... You know, you're walking through this old dilapidated house, and he's like, yeah, I grew up here. And it's kind of, like, doubly impactful because if you see it in the movie, you're like, wow. But when you're actually standing in it and he's saying it, you're like, wow, okay, because you get a sense of the space, you know.
were some horror stories of like when the sound went bad, for example, or maybe you were working with some difficult people, and you don't have to name names, of course. But. Generally speaking, the worst situations are when, well, there's two things. Like, first of all, directors typically pick locations with their eyes, not their ears. So invariably, I've done jobs where it looks really cool, but there's like a train track like right off the edge of the camera. <laughs> the train keeps coming by. Yeah, you know, or they don't, they just don't think sonically which is a problem and they don't often take me with them when they do a scout which is when scouting a location is just when you take the crew and you look at it and make sure that is this going to work yeah it's rare that they're going to take the sound guy which i I don't understand but it's just kind of how it is i would assume interstates would be a problem yeah you know and i mean there's always a rule of thumb if you see it it's it's more okay but i mean even then if you see an interstate and it's so loud then it's still distracting Mm -hmm. but like i did a political spot where someone's standing on an overpass and they're talking to you they're talking about traffic in nashville or something you know and you can see like the traffic on the interstate and it's like five o'clock and they knew that going in and that's what they wanted was that Mm -hmm. sense of like you can hear the traffic Mm -hmm. and so and that was that's fine but you don't always know that the director's thinking that way and so you get there and you're kind of like uh this is really not going to be great you know so that's that's the hardest thing is you're you're not in a studio and the world is extremely noisy. Mm-hmm. I mean, trust me, like if it's even out in the woods trying to get like cricket sounds, you still can hear a road somewhere, mm-hmm. even if you don't know where it is. Well, it's surprisingly difficult to get really clean right. stuff without other things in it. But wireless mics have kind of always been my, and most sound guys that do what I do will say, you know, where you're hiding a microphone on a person's body for various reasons you know it's a good tool to have but it's really hard to do because you got this little mic element laying right against like chest hair and clothing and anything rubbing it's just right there amplifying it like crazy so i mean it took me a long time to feel really comfortable and the problem is all reality shows they rely on those mics because if you don't know who's going to talk you have to just record them all the time and you have to have a mic that can move around with them which is why if you look at the early days of reality shows, they all sounded awful. Because you got to figure if you bury a mic under a shirt, it's going to get muffled. But, you know, just dealing... Some people get weird about putting a mic on them. You know, like having to learn how to be delicate about... You know, I'm a guy, and if you go up to a woman and you have to hide a mic on her, right. you know, you're having to run a cable through clothing and stuff and how to, like, kind of delicately deal with that. It's strange. I've never really had an actor or actress really be kind of a jerk you know it's usually other people on the crew that i've struggled with (laughs) well we'll talk about that because obviously everybody has to work together for this thing to work and if someone has a bad reputation of not getting along with other people do they eventually quit getting work oh no i mean you know i mean which explains why you still have a job yeah exactly i'm a total jerk um (laughs) No, it's, uh, well, it's like I was on a set one day and, you know, we were trying to do something with the sound. And this is some director from New York and he literally said, well, f*** sound. (laughs) And I'm thinking, well, that's where we're at. (laughs) And this guy, I mean, it's not like it was his first day on the job. I mean, he knew Mm -hmm. that he would need, and this was for an interview with a band. Now you tell me how that makes any sense. Like it's a, it's an interview about music, which is sound, and an interview which you can't just recreate. It's uh-huh. not like it's scripted. Uh-huh. And he was just like, "Well, yeah." So you run into that sometimes because it's frustrating, and people will blame the messenger, you know. So if you're like, "Hey, 
you know, I know you like the way this looks, but this is really, there's no way you're going to get usable sound here. Then they get mad at you for telling them as if it's your fault, right. as opposed to like, I'm just trying to help you. You can't just make it happen, is part of what they're saying. Like, why can't you just make it happen? Right. I thought you are the professional. Right. Why and, did I hire you? And at some point you realize your job is never to tell them what to do without either having a solution behind it. Like, mm. but we could do this, because mm-hmm. then you're not just the complainer, or being able to say, hey, you know, this is not a great thing, and then leave it up to them. Mm-hmm. And if they say, that's all right, we can live with it, then your job is done. And that's not to abdicate responsibility, but I used to really fight to get good sound because I felt like it was up to me to do that. And then I realized, well, sometimes that's counterproductive because one of the issues on a film set is you've got so many moving parts. It's just as bad to be overly, I guess, anal, for lack of a better word, for what you do as it is to not care. Because if you're being overly detail-oriented and obsessing over stuff, it's going to slow everything way down. If you don't understand, things, certain things can be fixed later. You don't rely on it, but you have to kind of know a range, and you also can't just phone it in. Right. So you turn in the sound, and you're done with it. Mm-hmm. Somebody else has to edit it. Yes. So basically, I'm literally, like, I'm the microphone with the recorder, and that's it. And then I take that recording and give it to uh, what's known as a post-production engineer. He imports all that into a computer system and then goes through and kind of adjusts levels and adds in sound effects. You know, someone else might record sound effects, for instance, and then that person gives them to him. And he's kind of like funneling all of that into the final project to sync it up with the image and make sure it all, you know, the levels don't go up and down too much. Hopefully, if I edit this correctly, <laughs> all the music you'll be hearing around our conversation will be music that you've composed mm. and recorded. You're also a musician and you're a guitar player, but not in the sense of like Jimi Hendrix, uh, Eddie Van Halen kind of guitar work, but more of, in the, I guess, in the vein of like Robert Fripp, for example, or yeah, this kind I mean, of soundscape. Living in Nashville, I always try to clarify that like I enjoy playing guitar more as a hobby than as a profession because immediately people think oh well what band again like what band are you in what are you doing and and i don't really approach it as a career thing as much as like i just enjoy playing with sound it's like kind of my job i have to record stuff a certain way and with my guitar work i can kind of explore just different sonic textures Mm -hmm. and things like that and you know it's like i kind of half jokingly tell people but there's a lot of truth to the fact that i'm just not that good at guitar playing as far as like technically I don't practice enough, and I'm not fast. You know, I can't do the really quick, like, Van Halen kind of stuff, which is fun, you know. If I, I mean, it's, I don't have a problem with that type of playing. It's, it's actually a lot of fun to listen to and for what it is, but kind of figured out, well, you know, if I get a delay pedal and I just do slow, deliberate things, I can layer it and create a dense texture, which is still sonically interesting and shifting and moving, but I don't have to be, like, fast. Mm-hmm. You know, and I can kind of have time to like get something repeating and then maybe just sit there and listen to it along with the audience for, you know, a minute or so and be like, well, where can I go next? You know, and then kind of come up with some ideas of stuff to try. And when uh, I have a record shop, I remember 
we sold some local music and you had a, a group whose CD was in there. Oh, yeah. Uh, what was the name of that group? Uh, that was uh, Voigtkampf. That's right. I could never could pronounce it. I always had it like Mein Kampf. It <laughs> sounds like some kind of strange like neo-Nazi uh, <laughs> punk band, but, but it's actually reference to uh, Blade Runner. The first Blade Runner, there's a section where if you if you watch it, I mean, it goes by pretty fast, but one of the guys in the band was a big fan of Blade Runner. And in the movie, whenever Harrison Ford's character is testing this person to see whether or not they're a robot, or in the movie they call them replicants, but... Mm-hmm. Um, he uses the Voigtkampf test, which is named after <laughs> oh. you know, some imaginary, you know, it's like hyphenated, like right. Bob Voigt and John Kampf or something. <laughs> so uh, the idea was that our band was supposed to be like, you you had to react to it as a human being because if you didn't, you couldn't just sit and passively listen to it, was the idea. I mean, it's a little highfalutin, and, a, and we didn't exactly like really super focus on some philosophical thing. Uh-huh. But the nutshell of it was that, like, yeah, this is not, like, verse, chorus, verse. This isn't, like, a regular structure. We would literally show up with no written music, and we just made it up. Mm-hmm. Now, that meant sometimes it was kind of noisy and kind of meandered. And But at, at certain moments, I'll tell you, there were strange moments where we would all coalesce completely unintentionally without knowing we were going to. We would listen. It was all about trying to listen to each other and react to what you heard rather than just getting in your own place and being like grooving out you know i mean we definitely were not like widespread panic or something right now were these compositions or were they always done on the fly yeah always on the fly okay i mean we never had a starting point so you could never repeat what was on the cd necessarily oh no okay yeah no way i mean i I don't even know what i was doing Mm -hmm. i mean i can go back and listen to it and be like that is really awesome i wish i could remember what i did (laughs) right and you were part of some live performances it was called rubber guitar well, Voigtkampf did, it was about five, six years I was doing that. And we did a lot of stuff at a, at a gallery in town. Okay. We had a consistent kind of standing and started bringing in other musicians in the same ilk, you know. After that kind of broke up, which actually was not the usual thing. It just, it more. It, it can't be. <laughs> a group that improvises. You, how do you... I mean, yeah, it was more like people <laughs> would get bored or they'd get a job and a wife and be like, ah, I don't really feel like doing this on the weekends. And none of us were under any illusions. I mean, I think, I think there's this misunderstanding that people have or, or a notion that people have that if you're into experimental music, you have this superiority about it. Like, oh, this is better than anything. This right. is only real music. And I think that stems from like the 20th century composers who kind of needed to be that way to keep a career, right. you know. But most of the experimental musicians I've ever talked to, and I know for us, uh, we, we liked, you know, I mean, I like the Beatles. I, I'd rather listen to that most days. I mean, every so often, <laughs> you know, I want to sit down and listen to John Cage because I'm like, man, I'm kind of curious. I'm really interested mm-hmm. in doing, like, this experience mm-hmm. today. But 95% of the time, I like rhythm and melody and all that, too. So I never expected us to be famous or popular and... You know, we'd have 10, 15 people at most of our shows, but it was that was good enough. It was fun because somebody was there, and it's kind of like you're sharing this thing you're doing. And it's something you would do anyway in your bedroom, more or less. Yeah, it's like, why not? And that's kind of what happened with the rubber guitar thing, is like, I just basically was realizing, oh, I'm sitting at home doing delay loops all day. I'm, hell, I may as well go try it out in public and see how people respond, mm-hmm. you know? And it's more risky, but it's more fun. Because I always feel like art kind of in a vacuum, it just loses its... It's kind of like, well, here we go. We're going to go down a rabbit hole here. Victor Frankl's will to meaning. (laughs) How about that? I don't know who either of those guys are. Put put that in your hat and smoke it. Yeah, uh, Victor Frankl came up with this concept 
that and, you know you have Nietzsche talking about will to power, <laughs> and then he, he and then Freud was all about sex and the pleasure principle, but. Victor Frankl was this guy who said, "I don't think it's really either of those. It's man. Mankind has a, a desire for meaning in what they do, and purpose. And so I think, for me, I could sit at home and just noodle, but it kind of felt like, what am I? I'm just wasting time. Like right. I'm just killing time. Whereas if you have an event and you have to get up in front of people, even if you're still kind of noodling a little bit, because I still I don't write stuff out. I still approach it the same way of just showing up and I start playing and see what develops." That's exciting by keeping it unknown, but because it's people, it gives it a sense of purpose, like I'm doing this for someone other than just myself. Mm-hmm. Is it something that you think that could be used as a soundtrack? Uh, I mean, it, yeah, it's usually, because I've had people do that or, or ask to do that. I mean, I think it could work. It's just, it, it kind of depends on the approach. Like, either it's something pre-recorded that people will take that and then they'll edit pieces they like, mm-hmm. kind of after I've done it. So there's no input to me as to what it was going to be used for. It's just they happen to find like a nice sound. They're like, all right. When we had met at the record shop, that was back in like 2000. Two or three, I believe. One day, it kind of came up that we were both at the same bizarre, surreal event. We had mentioned earlier the soundscapes and Robert Fripp. But we had both attended this talk that he gave. Oh, at the studio. Yeah, yeah, that was great. Yeah, a friend of mine, John Trevethan. Uh, at the time, it was called Antarctica Studios. It used right. to be called Sixteen Avenue Sound, but on um, Music Row. Anyway, what I remember, John Trevethan was a big fan of Fripp, and he had mentioned that he wanted to, to do... He doesn't like journalists, and apparently in Britain, they're incredibly malicious. And so he wanted to talk directly to the fans, but he, he didn't want it to be, hey, what's your favorite color, you know? Yeah. So he asked, did anybody want to host him having this little talk? So Trevethan said, hey, I got a studio, you can do it there. And somebody drove from Chicago down to Nashville, and some, mm-hmm. I mean, they came from all over. It was one of those days when it was over for me, I'd had a headache. Oh, it was intense, because he's very, yes, I mean, he's very particular. He can be and, a little abusive, I, I think, like how he treats people. It's, yeah, it's, you know, that's the thing, like, yeah, because I kind of came away from that, because when you read articles, he seems like such a smartass, mm-hmm. just kind of a jerk, but in person, what I realized was, oh, he's being sarcastic. Mm-hmm. Like, a lot of it, he was kind of making a joke, but you don't get that just in the written way. Mm -hmm. And for the most part, I mean, he was still pretty stringent. Like, if someone said, you know, like, are you and King Crimson working on a new album? He'd be like, yes. And then he would just move on. He wanted everybody prepared to answer a question before they gave the question for him. And his question was... What brought you here today? You remember that? Yeah, no, that was a, that was the scary part. Right? Yeah, because like it was everybody was wrong. Everybody's answer was wrong according to him. Says that you're lying. He would say something like that. But then finally, someone said, "Well, well my car brought me." He said, "Finally, somebody is telling the truth." It can be seen as kind of like stressful, but mm-hmm. but in a way, I think he's re- he's reacting against this kind of sleepy attitude people have taken toward like music in mass culture, you know, where it's like any musicians make something from their heart that they feel and they care about. But then if you're a fan and you're like, I'm a big fan and you completely miss it, mm-hmm. the point of it, or you don't really connect to it, that's, that's a, it's a weird scenario not many people experience. Mm-hmm. And so as an artist, you always want the public to kind of get what you're doing, but you realize it's not going to happen 100%. 
And in that scenario, you didn't get to ask the question either. You would put it on a piece of paper and you put it in a box and he would ask the question out loud and say, who asked this? And then you'd have to stand up in this crowd of people. And then he would ask you, you know, why does this question have value for you? Before he would even begin to answer it. And based on if he your, answered it, if yeah. he answered based on your response, he'd be like, if you said, well, I was just curious, he would cut you off midway and be like, oh, no, no, no. You know, like because yeah. like, curiosity is kind of, again, kind of a, it's a lazy answer. It's right? a lazy answer, yeah. you know, because there's obviously more to it than that. But he was trying to force people to be like, it's almost like I'm doing you a favor by making you figure out why right. this matters. You know, I felt like I'd been to class. Yeah. no, And even intense. though I felt he was a little unfair to people because. I mean, he's definitely but, got a very, yes, I mean, he can yeah. be abrasive. But it's you know? still a day, What? how many, two or three hours that we were stuck in that room with him, that I still think back a lot. And I learned a lot. So maybe it was that painful thing that people have to go through sometimes. You know, the professor you know, flipping the, the grasshopper in the nose or something. Well, it's funny know. you bring that up because that really goes right back. I mean, I, I am seriously reading a book by Viktor Frankl now called The Will to Meaning. And it talks about how... It's like some forms of psychology, they say it's all about getting your system back into equilibrium. And Frankel says that's completely wrong because without tension, you have no motivation to do anything. And meaning comes from being motivated towards some objective in a way. Mm -hmm. I mean, in a big sense, definitely, that's actually beyond you. So how can you be in equilibrium with something that's outside of you? I mean, you know, it's like it's it's a complicated thing, but it's kind of, I think, dead on that Sometimes I think we live in a world that's gotten so used to being comfortable that effort is seen as a bad thing when without effort you quickly sort of sink into this kind of blah state of like everything's boring, nothing's interesting because we think that tension and stress is always Mm -hmm. bad. Well, none of us like too much of it. Right. But without any of it, there's no motivation to get off your ass, you know? I mean, all the great religions, I think, point to that at least with the Jews, they would say that a lot of suffering is that purifying fire that burns all your BS out of you or all your illusions. Yeah. I brought up in another podcast a, a quote that he said about uh, we despise in others what we hate about ourselves. I, and I quote that all the time. Oh, yeah. And that's a very, like, Jungian thing, yeah. too. Well, I remember he, like, it was profound for me because he actually answered my question. Mm-hmm. What we, was your question? Do you remember? I think it was something like, do you ever find it difficult to be creative or come up with your idea you know something like that and he started off with a joke and he was like oh no i'm a i'm an endless font of of creative ability or whatever and then he like got serious and was like no i mean yeah i have days where i can a friend of mine i think is the only question that he praised her question was did your environment in england like wherever you lived, like landscape oh or whatever, yeah he did talk a lot did that affect your music how you make your music and he's like ah oh, this is a great question you know and he went on and on about it. i was proud of her because i don't think she was a, a big fan before we got there well and that's a really interesting point you raise i mean the fans kind of they fell on their faces i gotta say you know you're kind of it's the it's like that fan thing kind of messes with your perception mm-hmm. even me to a degree whereas someone who just is just some guy she's not intimidated by him she doesn't really care what he thinks if <laughs> he right. you know if he says something she thinks is <laughs> crap she's not gonna yeah. be like oh man what's that you know she's gonna be like well that's kind of crap oh the other thing was i'd always believed that he thought music came from kind of outside of you right and, like you were a conduit and there's some things he said that yeah, he said he was it. like he felt like he was a radio picking up a signal, and he was trying to say that if you think I'm great, it's not me. Right, but then I asked him, 
somehow I got a second question in. Now, how this works, I don't know, because I don't think that, I think maybe I had a few questions somehow, and he, like, kind of answered both, because, mm-hmm. and I think you were only sp- supposed to ask one, but somehow I know that the second part of my question was, if music comes from outside of you, how do you tap into it, or what? what how do you even access it? Right. And his response was something like, what makes you think it's coming from outside of you? Well, that's what he said, I thought. But that's what's interesting, right? I think he means both. Like, it made me really start thinking, like, oh, the thing that's coming through me feels like it's coming outside of me, but it's actually me doing it, but maybe it's a bigger me mm-hmm. or some higher part of being human. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, it's a mysterious way to say things, you know, but it yeah. was profound. It, what was weird is it's what I needed to hear. It, it really was uncanny in a weird way because... Had he gone along with the music is outside of you thing, it wouldn't have had nearly as much impact as when he said that to me because I was really struggling at the time with just like not feeling like I had anything creative to to do or like doubting myself or just feeling defective and having Mm -hmm. self-esteem stuff that we all have in our 20s and are dealing with. And And we still do. Still do. (laughs) Yeah. If you're you're self-aware at all. Yeah. 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 Your 40s don't get easier. They just get weirder. But when he said it that way, that gave me confidence it was almost like he knew that's what I needed to hear. Without sounding too weirdly esoteric no. and spiritual, it was almost like he kind of nailed my thing behind the question that I didn't know I was asking. And he threw me a bunch of candy. That's right! That's right, I forgot about that. If you liked your answer, he threw you a piece of candy. Hey, thanks for coming. <laughs> hey, thanks thanks for coming up to Nashville. Down. Oh, down? Yeah. I thought Brentwood was south. Oh, I'm house-sitting in Brentwood. Oh. I, I live in Kentucky. You're just like a traveling man. Yeah. I'm metropolitan. Is that, is that the word? Neo, Neapolitan. What's that ice that's, cream that's got three different yeah, flavors? Yeah, ne- Neapolitan's got the three flavors. Yeah, yeah, I think that was Napoleon's favorite, wasn't it? In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean.com. If you'd like to send us some hate mail, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. See ya, and I wouldn't want to be ya.